0: Hebrews 13 and verse 3 is the beginning here. Um, Now it's hot. Okay. It says, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. Now, initially there's a question about what it means in the body. And um, William Lane gives some good... Um, reasons why that believes, he believes that's the human body, not, not the body of Christ. Although, when I first looked at it, that's what I would think. Uh, and I'll share some of the reasoning he has with, with you. But the idea would be because we also share the frailties and sufferings that attend this present life, we can have empathy for others who are suffering and ill-treated and um, subject to mistreatment. Now, there's a previously it said that they themselves, uh, at least some of these Hebrew Christians, had gone through the same thing. Uh, Noel, could you look up Hebrews ten thirty-two through thirty-four? Remember the former days. Okay, Hebrews ten thirty-two to thirty-four. But remember the former days when. After being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Yep, that's it. So that's what they were willing to go through seizure of property, mistreatment, and so on, and suffering that attended the persecution that they had gone through. Now, um, I have a note here to look up Moses in Hebrews 11.25. So let me do that. Hebrews 11.25. Because Moses also served as an example. It says in Hebrews 11.25, let me start with verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward." So it's a really a, quite a magnificent example really, of Moses' case because there's very rarely in history anybody with such a stark contrast as Moses had. Because right? he, he could either be in the palace of Egypt as one of the most powerful wealthy men in the world if he's an heir to the throne possibly, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, or he can reveal his identity and become a slave and become abused as And he chose that latter those
1: two passages I use those a lot when we 're talking to the people that are dominion, you know kingdom now type thing. And we say here 's Moses who gave it up, and here are these people instead of demanding and taking over the governments that are putting these prisons and fighting them, they just try to accept the seizure of their property, and God was in charge of everything, and that the gospel is worth it
0: yeah, absolutely of dominion uh, of author- dominion teaching were true, Moses should have stayed in Pharaoh's court. Yeah, try to bring the kingdom of God through the things of the world, but that's not how God works. So Moses made quite a decision to um, join with the people of God and spend the rest of his life suffering affliction. And he suffered affliction because the people of God didn't treat him very good either. (laughs) Remember, they got out in the wilderness and they were grumbling and they were going to raise up somebody else and they wished they went back to Egypt. So Moses not only was suffering uh, to, in order to be joined to the people, then he had to suffer with them in, in their own unbelief and problems that they, that they got into. Um, uh, Dean, could you look up Hebrews 11.36 and 37? I think it, there's a, again a reference like this. Okay, they were a lot of bad things. They, they they were ill, they were destitute, they were stoned. they were. Uh, these were great people of faith that were going through a lot of suffering, right? Hebrews eleven. So not only Moses is given as example, so are a lot of other people that were willing to suffer um, for their belief, for their faith. I've been talking to people. It's it's interesting. It's going on today in the Christian church. Uh, it's been quite a week of phone calls from interesting people around the country and out of the country. Um, people that, for example, yesterday just before uh, we started recording our radio show, I was out in my office and the phone was ringing. Uh, and here's a lady from Canada, and she says, and, and just she said she's very thankful for the gospel and. Uh, really wants to serve God and um, preach the gospel and so on, but her church is going purpose-driven, like everybody else's it seems. And she was saying that <clears throat> she uh, was in charge of the. It must be a pretty big church. They had a some sort of a young adults ministry that she was in charge of, and she was using rape comfort material to try to get people excited about the gospel. And the pastor told her that she was forbidden to use anything from Ray Comfort. Well, because it has the gospel, so they're trying to go seek her, and if you start preaching the law and the gospel, somebody might get saved. saved. And so, uh, anyhow, this lady was just beside herself, saying, you know, I don't know what to do, I can't, I don't, I can't, they don't even want the gospel. And so she was reading, she calls, she ordered one of my books and know why it wasn't there yet. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago, and I was going into Canada. So I sent her some stuff, and just some people were looking for tools. But I got another call from, no, an email from somebody out east that heard the radio show that Brian and I are doing. And she was saying, I need help. I need help. They won't listen to me. I need to be able to fight this evil that's coming into our church. And what's happening is Christians are actually being persecuted by fellow Christians for the because they love the gospel. Amen. Because the gospel's a thread. You can't really have the gospel if you're going to have the secret movement. Well, Ryan, you just had to take a class that's based on this other thinking, right? Tell me, tell everybody what you just told me about your paper and what the class is about.
2: I don't. I just. I had to write a, a paper on the, my theology of evangelism and, and discipleship, and you know, I tell him, Bob, I just don't know how good of a grade I'm going to get on it because I just <laughs> because I just ended up writing on on the basic biblical definition of evangelism, the pure gospel, and then with discipleship, the means of grace. Means of
0: grace, yeah. And that was it. I didn't get
2: into any fancy smancy uh, methods and what have you, and. I mean, you have all this stuff that they wanted you to go through, becoming a kid, contagious Christian, and, and you know all this stuff from Willow Creek and Saddleback and stuff like that. But it's really not gospel-centered. It's much more, much more man-centered. It's man-centered. And so, you know, but I'm not gonna, for the sake of getting an A, you know, <laughs> gonna, gonna write a paper
0: that's gonna please the professor. Well, well and you also earlier. Yeah. I, I, I haven't
2: gotten
0: that grade yet. Well, you, you also took a class from this guy that now has the biggest church in Minnesota on preaching. Oh yeah,
2: yeah, and the, uh, Bob Merritt. Uh, he's got what is it, Eaglebrook?
0: Eaglebrook. They've got eight thousand people coming now, so they're the biggest church in Minnesota. Oh, and, and you wouldn't believe
2: how much of the, the the things there. How much he would say, like you know, this. I would always come back to this is the stuff people want to hear. They don't want to hear about you know.
0: Doctrine. People don't want to hear doctrine, so don't preach doctrine. Say
2: that flat out, and most of the people would nod and yeah, yeah, yeah. In
3: other words, they don't want to
0: hear the truth. Right. No, that's, that's just what, that's well, they say that. That I have a slide, uh, um, you know, on that DVD we made for the for the uh, redefining. There's a slide that quotes Rick Warren that says people are not looking for truth. So they do the demographic study and uh, and they and they ask people. they don 't want truth, so what do you do well you don't give them truth because they don't want it uh, and so it's really gotten that bad
2: well, on, my, on my paper what i I wrote um, and i i I, I quoted first Corinthians uh, chapter fifteen uh verses one through eight, which paul really i, I said this is essential you have to have this stuff where you don 't have a gospel amen because it, it says I gave this to you of first importance that 's the wording Paul you yes yeah. this is of first importance It says Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, he was raised in accordance with the scripture, and then he appeared to and and, and i you know basically said, if this is not there, there is no gospel, and thus no
0: no evangelism there's no evangelism and and there are no disciples no see no. you can't be a disciple if there you're not converted exactly. And so you take like this shape program and it works for you. You don't have to be a Christian to study your own shape. That's <laughs> <Now, Sam.
4: laughs> When you get these emails from people that are concerned about purpose driven or any other programs coming to the church that are not gospel centered, oftentimes they go to the pastor and present their, their papers, books,
2: or whatever, and the pastor usually turns them down. Well, then, should. Sh- is the emphasis they should do that, but shouldn't they also then be uh, uh, encouraged to help others that believe the same way as they do that they're looking for? In other words, find brothers and sisters within that. Find the remnant, yeah.
0: Find the remnant, and then. Well, that's what they do, but but that's the. I don't know if I sent that one around. With this lady she said she thinks she's going to get kicked out of her church for contending for the gospel, because the part of the reason they do kick these people out. Is they're afraid they will find a remnant, and they'll start wanting things like Bible studies in the church. You know, so what what does evangelical mean? Yes.
4: Well, I, yesterday I was listening for a while, and uh, and maybe it was when you were and John were talking
2: together, or one of the other speakers on the program. And they were saying that uh, they've had concerns, deep concerns, of pastors of these huge churches. When they start bringing the gospel in, membership goes
0: down. Well, uh, yeah, they they couldn't exactly because the seekers can't tolerate the gospel. You know, you know what's interesting is that the whole thing seems so obvious. It's, it's just it blows me away that it's, it's we shouldn't even have to be talking about this. But, but
5: it's just the way it's just the way the word says it's going
0: to be. Yeah, that's true. But who knows what's going to happen? But it, the number of people I'm hearing from is going up all the time, and they all have the same story. The same story is, I was in a church that used to preach the word, now it doesn't, I'd ask the pastor, or I, I, and he told me, no, we're not, just forget about that, or they're gonna get kicked out, and so on and so forth. And the second part of the story is, I can't find the church. Now, we heard from somebody... Was that you, Brian, talking about this person in Missouri? Yeah. Bizarre, it started going out in a radius of 80 miles? <laughs> he, went, he knew that their statement of faith
5: on the website was useless. That much you knew. So he met with each pastor. He met with 25 pastors, and not a single one of them would repute contemplative, horrible purpose. Not one of them. He doesn't, he goes, my wife and I
0: still don't have a church to go to because I don't know how much farther out I need to drive. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, maybe the Lord will raise up a movement or the rapture is going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. But there certainly would be a right, a movement. If somebody could go into any one of these towns and just start preaching the gospel, God would raise up the remnant. And you can start a church. Um, Okay, I was going to read William Lane's comment on uh, Hebrews 13.3 about being ill-treated. So what brought up this topic was that this still happens today. The gospel is at odds with everything in the world. And for the most part, it's at odds with most of what's in the church. As far as the organized religion church. And so one way or another, it creates conflicts. Because conflicts are part and parcel of the gospel. Because once you have been apprehended by God's grace, and you see the glories of the gospel and the truth of it, and the fact of the blood atonement and all these important doctrines, that immediately there's hostility between you and the world. Amen. Alright? Because friendship with the world's hostility to God, and and there's just, that's the way it's always been. It's not new today, it's always been that way. so because of that, Christians have to be willing to show compassion to other ill-treated Christians around them and to, to be there for one another because we really do need one another. Fellowship is an essential for our, our Christian life. Now here's what it says uh, in this particular commentary. The readiness of Christians to lend material support to brothers in prison is attested not only by the New Testament and later Christian writers like Justin's Apology, um, and so on. Uh, it's also, but by Lucian, a far from sympathetic witness. Lucian's statement about the manner in which Christians responded when Peregrinus Proteus was arrested and imprisoned in Palestine furnished a valuable commentary of the formulation of 3a. His vivid account as a source of insight on the extent to which Christians in the second century rallied their resources to support a brother imprisoned as a confessor. Um, another uh, let me give you a little historical background. Early on, they were killing Christians. Right? And, and, uh, then they found out that that just made Christianity spread. So then uh, some of the later persecutions, they just started demanding, they started confiscating scriptures and uh, demanding that people deny Christ and then imprisoning them. All right. So it created a new category of people here, which he's calling confessors before they had martyrs. All right. Well, now they have confessors, because if you um, if you confessed Christ, you'd lose your property, and be put into prison. But if you denied him, you could keep your job and and be fine with the Roman Empire. All right? So these confessors were later in prison and became part of the church, and it created actually an interesting controversy, but I won't get into that right now. Initially, the Christians did everything within their power to have Proteus released. When When that proved impossible, they identified themselves with him in the prison. The detail that certain leaders, quote, after bribing the guards, slept inside Peregrine's cell with him suggests that the church in the 2nd century sought to honor the admonition to remember those in prison as if they were fellow prisoners. So they actually bribed the guards so they could go into prison when they weren't the prisoners to be with their brother in Christ in the prison. And, And this account was written by a secular writer telling the story about what these Christians were doing. They were prepared to share the actual living conditions of an imprisoned brother in order to demonstrate their solidarity with him. Lucian also refers to the bringing in of meals and to the reading of the Scriptures and their exposition. Christians were eager to extend to the prison the communal experiences of the house church church gathered around the dinner table. This suggests that the early church regarded ministry to Christian brothers in prison as a corollary of the responsibility to practice Hospitality. And so, these people that had to go through this much suffering to just extend what was important to them, which was what? Reading Scriptures, communion, and Christian fellowship. That they were willing to be in prison in order to extend that and to have it still be true and still be real with someone who had been in prison. So, the, the thing that shames us is that we're free to do this in America Whenever and wherever. I mean, in other words, we're totally free. We have the right of free speech. We have the right of assembly. We have constitutional rights to do these things that Christians have done, which is exposition of Scripture, sharing communion and fellowship and so on. But we choose not to because we would rather have popularity with the world. That's what's going on. That's why I am willing to spend the rest of my life fighting the seeker movement because it's 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 doing more uh, it's doing more to destroy the validity of Christianity than any prison ever thought to do. Yes.
2: Well, you know what's interesting is you look at I mean obviously there's it's not to the degree that we see in the other church but the, the to confess you would lose your property, things would be seized and get thrown in prison. Well, still, if you can look at what, what's the fear of, of what we just talked about in the secret movement in the church, they start confessing,
0: they'll lose their members. Lose their members. <laughs>
2: so it, it really comes back to the underlying of possession and, and yeah. willing and, and the, the desire to hold on to that rather than confess Christ, and whatever, things will fall where they may.
0: Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, You can see that in the context. Let's read on and just see where this is going a few verses down. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Which, by the way, um, it may seem unrelated, but if assuming it's talking about the human body, those that are in the body, then this would be also related because instead of living for pleasure and sin, you honor God's institution of marriage which is something done in the body. And then verse 5, let your character be free from the love of money, which Ryan was just talking about, being content with what you have. For He Himself said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So what we, what, what we have that's the most valuable thing that we could ever have is Christ Himself Amen. and His covenant relationship that, he, that we've entered into with Him through His blood. And having Christ and having fellowship we have all that we need and he, we have the covenant promise that He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And that's how we stay free from the love of money. Nicole?
3: So what you're talking about is making me think of a passage where the rich man came up to Jesus and said, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And he looked right at him and said, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And he couldn't do it. And I was just having a conversation with a friend the other day and I said, you don't have to be necessarily... Monetarily wealthy, or you know, to be possessive of things in the world. You
0: know, no, you don't have to be. You can be very poor and still love money, and
3: still be clinging to these material or, or earthly possessions. And like what you were saying about, you know, they don't want to lose their membership. It's they have the same spirit or attitude as that rich man that just turned away from Jesus and walked
0: away. Yeah, isn't that something? You have Nicole. If you couldn't hear, was talking about the rich man. That wouldn't that jesus said to sell all you have and he he didn't think it was worth it he didn't want to give up his riches to have Christ right so he lost his soul. and so he walked away with his riches. but then the interesting thing is if I'm remembering this right, correct me if I'm getting my Bible wrong, isn't it right after that there's a discussion with the disciples and and they and they said, this is very hard uh and and they said, well, who then can be saved right? Yes, because the disciples saw the radical nature of Jesus' teaching, and they said, "Well, who can be saved?" Because it's a, he said he talked about a camel going through the eye of the needle in there. And what did what was Jesus' answer to their question? Amen. It's possible for God. Amen. <laughs> that's a, that's the right answer. The answer is what's impossible for men is possible for God, and, and conversion is an act of God, right? And he can take the most rebellious, money-loving, uh, dis- you know, messed up person and convert that person. And, and literally, people that are converted, if they thought there was some reason to do so, they'd give up their money. If that's, if they knew it. Uh, it's just, the, that's just, you know, the, it doesn't mean that you, giving up your money would save you. You're saved by faith through grace. Alright, let's get our theology, you know, start thinking here, right, Because Paul said if I gave up all my possessions and had no love, it would be worthless. And agape love only comes from God through the gospel, right? Okay, so we're not saying the willingness to sell because people will sell all and go join a cult. Or they'll sell all and become a Buddhist monk or something. But, but what I'm saying is that, that the gospel is such that once you've been apprehended by the Gospel, it's more important than everything else. Yes, Dean. I think
4: uh, we can all identify with an example that I'm going to give, but uh, I've been faced in my lifetime four times on the operating table. And when you're in that position, you want to make sure you're right with God and you want to be close to your loved ones. And it's really funny because these four times, I never wanted to check my bank statement i never wanted to, to, to make balance my checkbook and I, I never wanted to make sure that oh i got to see my car one more time you know your, your possessions are just totally out of the question you know you get your priorities in order when you're facing a, when you're facing a surgery and the only thing that is important is that you're right with god and you're right with your with your loved ones and it just puts things in priority for life.
0: yeah you had a real serious thing that happened right yeah.
4: Behind my
0: eye. Have several other yeah. Well, so, anyhow, it's a good point. Pretty So at some point in life, you're faced with all this stuff really doesn't mean anything. doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And so, all the gospel is doing is making that clear up front, but it's harder to do. Okay. Yes. Yes.
5: I was just thinking this morning, you know what you're talking about being homeless? Most people are homeless. And I get to be a real estate agent from God talking about homes. Like I told the homeless that you're not homeless. We're talking about a home for eternity through the shed blood of Christ by putting your faith in God. A lot of God, four or five mansions, but we're talking on the eternal scale. they homeless as homeless can be. So when Moses gave up the riches of heaven... Sure, he suffered with God's people, but he had eternal riches. Noah got to preach for 120 years. I love Noah. He never got one convert because he got to yell for God for 120 years, and God heard every minute of it. And so we get to tell these homeless they can have a home for eternity. And these most people are homeless. And then how do you take care of five homes and five mansions and jet planes? Who wants all that stuff anyway? It's straight out of hell. I'm gonna tell you, we just need what we got, and I'm getting ready to die at the fourth quarter of my life, and I want to shout the glory of God where real riches are, real you're, riches. You're... On the foundation, God says, gold, silver, and diamonds, not straw hay, and we're, and they won't be able to hear me up in heaven, so I'm gonna make a lot of noise now, shout how great He is, and how great is
0: He? <laughs> yeah, so damn... okay, he? <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Dan, we, I saw you were out there this morning. I went, I got out to see how bad the mess was out here. There's Dan yeah. sitting there with somebody out there explaining the gospel. So yeah, they can have a home in heaven. Yeah. A and so he ready. goes to the homeless and tells them where they can find a better home. <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> Let me tell you about a home far better. Three houses. <laughs> Free housing, a mansion in heaven. You'll get there sooner rather than later. I like your analogy. You're in the fourth fourth quarter. I think a lot of us are. Um, could you look up? Um, yeah. Why am I looking at you? No, I was going to give you a verse. I wasn't implying that. Maybe you're in a two-minute drill. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Genesis 40, 14, 15, and 23 uh, for Brian. And um, Stephen, uh, Jeremiah. You know what? That's a long section. I think I'll just read it myself so everybody can hear it. So I'll give you Matthew 25, 36. And then, um, you know Bible, Keith? Okay, Leif. Nice to have you back, by the way. Leif's back from college. Romans 12, 15. Doesn't he look a lot smarter? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Car- Caron, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. <laughs> okay. Genesis uh, 40, 14, 15. And I said 23. Okay, what's it say? 14, 15, and 23. Yeah.
5: Okay. Okay. Uh, but think of me when it shall be well with you and show kindness, I beg of you to me and mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For truly I was carried away from the land of the Hebrews by unlawful force. And here too I have done nothing for which they should put
0: me into the dungeon. Great. Joseph was talking to this guy that was going to get out and help him. Alright, then 23. Let's see what happened.
4: But even after
5: all that, the chief butler gave no thought to Joseph but forgot all about
0: him. Okay, so I was talking about remembering those in prison. So Joseph was a fellow prisoner with this guy and interpreted his dream that he was going to be able to get out and restored to his job with uh, the Pharaoh. And he said, remember me. So what did he do when he got out? They forgot Joseph, let him rot for three more years. <clears throat> so it says he's supposed to remember the prisoners. Um, okay, Matthew 25, 36.
3: Naked and you clothed me. I was
4: sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me.
0: Then read verse forty-three
4: to them. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and you in prison and you did not visit me.
0: Okay, so it was judgment based on how people responded to prisoners, All right? Um, Romans twelve
2: fifteen. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Just in mind towards one
3: another. do not be in mind, associate with the lowly. do not be wise estimation.
0: Okay, associate with the lowly, care about people as far as what they're going through. One Corinthians 12 twenty six And if one member suffers, all members suffer can if one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. Okay, so there's a solidarity of the Bible, of the body of Christ. Um, I had a long section here. Jeremiah thirty-eight six through thirteen. Let's see what that is. Jeremiah thirty-eight six through thirteen. I like looking up these Old Testament passages while we're studying through whatever book, because I just there's no way there's time to teach through the entire Old Testament verse by verse because it's so long. But I want everybody to learn the Old Testament. So we try to do a lot of cross references into the Old Testament so that we get, so that we learn it while we're studying the New. Jeremiah 38, Jeremiah 38, starting with verse 6. Then they took Jeremiah. Oh, this was, uh, this is an interesting story. Okay, now I see why I have it in here. This is what happened to Jeremiah for preaching the truth. Okay. Then they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of uh, Melchachah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in his cistern there was no water but only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. <clears throat> but Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch, while he was in the king's palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. Now the king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin. And Abed, excuse me, Ebed Melech went out to, from the king's palace and spoke to the king, saying, "My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly, and all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the cistern, and he will die right where he is because of the famine, for there is no more bread in the city." Then the king commanded Abed Melech the Ethiopian, saying, "Take thirty men from here under your authority and bring up Jeremiah the prophet from the cistern before he dies." So Ebed-Melech took the men under his authority and went into the king's palace to a place beneath the storeroom and took down uh, their worn-out clothes and worn-out rags and let them down by ropes into the cistern of Jeremiah. Then Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, now put these worn-out clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. So they pulled him out. (laughs) That's how they pulled him out of the cistern. So an Ethiopian here... uh, his own people threw him in there to die in the mud in the bottom of a dry, of a cistern that was just mud. And an Ethiopian had mercy on him and pulled him out. And basically he argued to the king, well if you want Jeremiah dead, we have such a bad famine, he's just gonna die anyhow like everybody else. So why should he have to die in the mud? That would be a terrible death to have to sink down in the quicksand type stuff, yes. He ends up, Yeah, then he ends up telling the truth later on
1: to take him to Egypt.
0: Yeah. They never did listen to him. He was proven right over and over again because he predicted the Babylonian captivity and when it happened they had to know he was a prophet from God and so then he they, he got another word from the Lord that told them uh to stay where they were because God was later going to restore Israel and they wouldn't listen to him they took him by force to to Egypt they left. they wouldn't listen to God so Jeremiah had a tough job um and and he complained about it at times you know I Jer- mean you, you know, what's really in yeah who wouldn't yeah with jeremiah is interesting history if you just i did this one time and kind of did a sermon about the life of Jeremiah, but if you just read through Jeremiah and pull out the biographical parts about what he did and what he you know what happened to him and his conversations with the Lord about his own ministry, it's a very very interesting um person' this Jeremiah okay, let's see here, five one five um. Uh, I'm going to read some more here uh, from my commentary. The sequence of Hebrews 13, 1-3 suggests an implied call to full participation in the life of the confessing community. Those who respond in love, providing shelter to persecuted brothers and sisters, visiting them in prison, and caring for them when they are ill-treated, will will, through these acts acknowledge themselves to be Christian. Their actions will complement and validate their public confession of Christian faith. In the absence of demonstration of love to other confessors of Christ, public confession is an empty gesture. Confession in the form of action is indispensable for exhibiting the quality of life within the confessing community. In the context of 1228-29, to 29, the expression of brotherly love to which the members of the house church are summoned are the responses of gratitude that constitute authentic worship. So two things need to be true to have an authentic, confessing congregation. One is that we are confessing. That is, that the terms of the Gospel, the person and work of Christ, the blood atonement, the things that are the key to having this covenant relationship, the, term, the terms of the covenant, are professed, confessed, and they're on our lips. But the second thing that's necessary is that the lives that God has changed through His grace in the Gospel would be demonstrated uh, by uh, our love for one another and our willingness to be there for one another and our willingness to take these sort of actions that are are discussed here. Alright? And that shows that you have a valid confessing church. Yes?
1: But if you misapply the whole issue on confession is really critical. The second John says... Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And the one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For anyone who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So that's the flip side. We're supposed to support the confessors
0: right. at any cost. And resist the deniers. Resist the deniers,
1: even to the extent don't feed them.
0: Yeah, you're right, especially being how, what we're talking about, the house church. As, as we're talking about it in Hebrews here, is that you can't bring the wolves in to the church. You can't bring the wolves in to fellowship. We're going to publish an article. It's, it's done. I wrote an it's not, <coughs> excuse me. It's not a very finely crafted essay like I try to do. I don't know if I do that or not, but <laughs> this one's even less so. But what it is is a good Bible study because Jan asked me to come on the air in fact, Brian, is, you're going to—both of us are going to go on, right? right? June 10th, yeah. She asked Brian and I to go on the air with her, and she wants to discuss these things that everybody keeps bringing up. And, and one of them is that people tell Jan when she corrects error that she's guilty of judging. And so, how dare you judge? And then, uh, and then the other thing we're going to talk about is this, the state of the evangelical church and what's going to happen, what can be done. Uh, in the second hour. So we're going to do two hours on June 10th on the radio. But it, it, Jan asked me to get the material together on the judging so we'd have a well, starting point for the radio show. So I sat down and started writing about it, and out came an article. I, I ended up with like 6,000 words. And it was an interesting study. And then the, the other thing I did, because Keith gave me the assignment, I didn't want to do it. I was just lazy. And he, he said, no, you've got to find all those verses and put them in category. Oh, I don't have time. We're selling a building. You've got to find all those verses. We're going to need them in the article. So just to get the squeaking wheel to go away, I, did, I found the verse. So what I did... Yeah, make me work harder. So what I did was I took my computer Bible and found the, the word for judge is crino. And then there are derivatives: Crino, diacrino, Anacrino, and and I think krisis. Uh So I, I looked up all those Greek words, and then I found every verse in the New Testament where the words were found. Then I went through and took out all the ones that that were about God judging because that's not our topic. Our topic is what we do or don't do. All right? We all know God judges. So I took all those out and I was left with all these verses that even had the Greek word for judge in. And then I then I printed out every one of them, and I sat down and started putting them into the categories based on their context. All right, when it says to judge, when it says not to judge, and then what what we can judge, what we can't judge, and went through there, and I ended up with this whole chart based on the Greek words in the categories. Now what that is is a a, a a range of meaning study. I don't know if you ever had to do that. Uh, did you ever have Doctor Smith? I do it all. Yeah. To it in really? Yeah. And it's something that really is an eye-opener when you do it. Dr. Smith taught us how to do that with the Hebrew in the Old Testament. And so we'd go do our range of meaning study. So you'd find every time this word's used, and then you look up, okay? Because you can usually tell a meaning of a word if you get enough of a context for it, alright? Sometimes you may need scholarly help. So I did that with Judge and created this whole Thing, to put in the CAC article sort of as an appendix for people. And here's the eye-opener. By far, the biggest category was to judge. That we ought to judge. To judge yeah. yeah, that we have to judge. And, 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 that, and, and, that, and what, it, what that category was was to make a determination based on facts and or Scripture. To be discerning. Yeah, to be discerning. And so there's a whole big slew of verses that tells us to do that. Now, then it tells us not to judge in a, in, a, in a few different separate categories, but the result of my study was this. What we are to judge is what we can know, and what we're not to judge is what we can't know. Mm-hmm. Right? And so if you look at the things where it tells you not to judge, it always is because you can't know. Right? Future, yeah, future yeah, yeah, the future, unknown future. Somebody's hidden motives that we can't possibly know. The things that we're not supposed to judge are things that only God knows and we don't know, so we can't judge. But what we are supposed to judge is what we can know. And what we can, and then another interesting thing that came out of my study was these verses about two or three witnesses. You, you, the reason for the two or three witnesses that are repeated several times in the New Testament is that you don't judge that somebody's a sinner or a certain kind of a, doing a certain kind of sin based on one person's testimony. All right? Why? Because according to the law, one person's testimony does not settle a fact. Because we can't know that it's factual based on one testimony. Why? Because one person can have bad motives and lie about another person in order to get them judged and kicked out of the church. All right. So it says that every fact will be determined among the two or three witnesses. So it says, if your brother sins, go talk to him, and if he repents, you won your brother. If not, then you bring two or three witnesses. But if you can't find two or three witnesses, you can't bring it to the church. Why? Because it's considered unknown. And then Paul said that when he came to Corinth and he was going to judge sin going on there. He said every fact will be confirmed by two or three witnesses, even for Paul. He wouldn't judge a sin unless there were two or three witnesses. Otherwise, it's considered unknown. Yes.
1: Even when Jesus went before trial, they brought multiple witnesses, but they couldn't get two witnesses to agree on the same thing, so they didn't have any good witnesses against him.
0: Right. So the so the the, the law of two or three witnesses was it was to establish what is a fact. So, to conclude, and this will be published in a week or two, but we're going to do a radio show on it. To conclude then, is that we have a responsibility to judge what can be known. Amen. Now, that passage in John, we can know when somebody goes too far. Right? There is a body of revealed truth in the Scriptures, that's, the, that's what it does, that draws the boundaries about what can be known and what can't be known. The secret things belong to God, but what can be known is what's revealed. Now, taking this body of revealed doctrine, you have boundaries. Alright? The doctrine that God gives us creates the boundaries for the church. So anybody that can read the Bible can know when someone goes too far and doesn't abide in the doctrine of Christ. And when you, and so that can be judged and that must be judged. And so when it's judged that someone's not abiding in the doctrine of Christ, then according to 2 John, they're judged to be false or a wolf, not a sheep. Right? And it is the obligation of the leadership of the church to not allow wolves into the flock. Yeah, right. And I'm going to preach a sermon a week from today on this because I think... I see Matthew 7 now clearer than I've ever seen it in my life. And I know I preached it through Matthew three or four years ago. I was probably in Matthew 7. But I know I didn't see it as clear then as I do now. So what I want to show is what fruits are and what they are. And we'll just walk through Matthew 7 and see what we can judge and what we can't judge. And what does it mean to judge by the fruits? Now, And I'll tell you right away what it's not. It's not what somebody looks like. In fact, one of the passages I found in my study was that people make, it says, do not make unrighteous judgment. You judge by appearances. That's what Jesus said. If you judge by appearances, you're making unrighteous judgment. Okay, so somebody comes along and they're nice and they're, they're, they're funny and they're charming and they're, uh, uh, you know, really kind of like a cool person that you'd like to be friends with. That's not what you judge. That doesn't mean anything. They'd, like I said in my article, it could be the Dalai Lama. That's right. Amen. You, you're not going to let people into the flock just because they're nice. Okay. But, yeah. okay.
5: Apostle Paul dealt with it today. Uh, on the internet, and in every which way, even amongst Christians, he dealt with a great right back when sexual reversions One of the people in the church in the days of Paul was sleeping with his stepmother. And the church... When the church should make a judgment today, they don't make a judgment.
3: Oh
0: yeah, by the way, that was passage yeah. I found in my study. And he said, one Corinthians If line. this
5: man repents, we will forgive him. If he doesn't repent, I'll turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his soul will go to heaven as by fire. Today, one of the biggest problems in the church is a lot of, on the internet, people confess to me, I didn't ask for it, with their problems. You catch them with uh, young children supposedly believers, perversions of every sort going on today like Simon and Gamora. And so that needs to be addressed within the church. I was at a church where the choir director ran off with one of them. Uh, and the church welcomed that because like everything never made a challenge to him. And where they should make a judgment. Well, we don't want to hurt nobody's feelings. We're not going to make a judgment. But God asks us to make a judgment at times when it's sticking in your face, the whole church sees
0: it, and there's witnesses. Okay, okay. what you're talking about is Matthew 18, and that's what that is about. And See, what's happening is a misuse of Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is about that sort of thing. Okay? Yes. Because there was a fellow here, one of the first times we ever had to do this as a congregation was in the early 80s, there was a guy who simply decided, I don't want to be married to my wife. Well, So we said, why? What did she do? Do you have any grounds for this? Oh, no, she's fine. I like her. She's a really nice person. I just don't want to be married to her. I want somebody else. Really? Yeah, that's what he said. So we we brought it before the elders and we didn't it wasn't hard to find witnesses because he just told us this is what he's gonna do. <laughs> All right? And uh we said, You can't do this. You got a perfectly fine Christian wife, that's you, you can't do this. Well no, I don't I don't want her, I'm gonna go find somebody else. And so he leaves his wife. And so we kicked him out of the church. Said, You're not welcome here, you're not the fellowship here, you're gone, you're out of here. So he went over to another church and he got in their music ministry, found a wife there, and, uh, so, so this is what happens, but nevertheless, you know, it was interesting, his sister went here as well, and I saw her a few years ago, she was visiting from New York, and he said, and she said, since then he's gone through four wives. He's just, we he, see, he, he didn't want to submit to, he didn't want to submit to church discipline, and so his life is just not right, okay? But that's what that's about, but, the misapplication is they're saying that if some false teacher sells books to people in your church, and you, as a pastor, say these books are false teachings and they're they're going to be harmful to your soul, and we want to guard you from this because we're looking after your spiritual well-being, then they say, "Oh, you're judging, and that's a sin." So they're making huge category errors. Okay? Yes. I
1: think, and this is maybe difficult concept, but when we say God said don't judge, when the scriptural God said to judge, I'm defining a new God, a little g, this God doesn't judge, and this is the one you're supposed to follow, because this God doesn't judge, he's a nice guy, this is the one we're following. In in essence, when I go too far beyond the scriptures, I start defining a different God that doesn't judge, or that approves of something, and it's not the God that Moses showed us, That Jesus showed us, He showed us the Father. The Father said to judge, and in proclaiming that, we serve a God that doesn't judge the way that we're supposed to. We really are bringing in a God, the little g, that doesn't, that isn't the God revealed in the Bible. It's an idol as much as any
0: idol. That's interesting. It's a redefined God, and God defines Himself. We don't define Him. We've
3: made an idol.
0: Yeah. We made a a, a false god. Yes, uh, Nicole.
3: I just wanted to mention that um, I just made a decision to leave a church that I've been at for three years because in a three-year battle of trying to explain to them that contemplative prayer is wrong and even Bob and Brian coming to do a conference there, (laughs) there are still people coming to me and saying, you're judging and you are hurtful to the youth pastor even though they've made a blanket statement that, okay, contemplative prayer is wrong, they've put me under the scope that all these things I said and did to try to bring the truth into light that I'm a judging, hurtful person. Mm-hmm. And I tried to explain, you know, Scripture tells me that I need to be discerning. And, I, and maybe you can correct this if I said this wrong, but but I said, you know, I, in my understanding, I think there's a little bit of a difference between judgment and discernment. I said, I I'm not God. I don't have the power to pass sentence over you and enforce it. God has that power. Yeah. But I am told by Scripture to have discernment about who is a false teacher. You know?
0: Yes. Actually, let me, if you could look up 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, I have a whole section in this article on that one verse. Because that's one of the ones telling us not to judge. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5.
3: Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At okay. that time, each will receive his praise.
0: Right. God. So where it says, "Don't judge before the time," God will. But what was under question? The motives of men's heart. So we can't judge that because we don't know it. People may have really, really good motives and be teaching damnable doctrine, I, and people may have bad motives and teach the true gospel. <laughs> okay. I, I even brought up the
3: scripture that, that he mentioned about. Uh, it's in the next chapter. First Corinthians and 5 where Paul's talking about the man that was sexually immoral. They're, yeah,
0: they're supposed to judge that. And he yes. Um, Absolutely.
3: You know, I've written in my you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all means the people of this world. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or swindler, a drunkard, a drunkard, which such men do not even eat. And I said, okay, maybe he's not sexually immoral, but he's an idolater, and that he's trying
0: to sway the whole church to contemplative prayer. He's an idolater. And yeah, saying, should be judged. We need to, he's yeah. refusing, we need to get rid. Of yeah, him. you know, in those two chapters, you have a little microcosm of what judgment is and isn't. First Corinthians four, we read in chapter five, not to judge. Now, what were the Corinthians doing? They were trying to judge who's more pious. Well, I'm Apollos, I'm a Paul, and I I like. So they were judging relative merits of different preachers based on their own prejudice, who they think is more spiritual or more pious. And Paul came out on the bottom because he wasn't spiritual in their eyes. Okay, so they said, don't judge that because we won't know who's rewarded more than others until God does it in eternity. It's not for us to even think about. So they're making false judgments about things they couldn't know. But they have something they couldn't know, and that is this person is living in incest, and they know it. And they don't do anything about it. So what we have is the church wanting to judge what they can't know, people's motives, or relative piety, and not judging what they can know what, that sin needs to be dealt with. Yeah. Yeah, there's just a person
1: uh, close to us that was just saying, came up to a, a family whose children had died in an accident and said, your children are in hell. Your children are in hell because you sinned. And that's exactly the same kind of thing.
0: You passage. can't do that. You can't
1: know it but you that's up to God. We can say that somebody's teaching something badly but for all, we don't know anybody's heart. We don't condemn people to hell. We just know what teaching's that that the teachings that hell promotes.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, we will try to get you, we'll have that material published so that you can actually look at it. But it, I think it's, and we're going to talk about it on the radio on June 10th. And, and it is an interesting study. But uh, the bottom line is, you can judge what you can know. You can't judge what you can't know. Amen. And what's going on is the church refuses to judge what it can know. That is whether somebody's doctrine. Is from God or not? Okay, God bless you. We'll see you upstairs in a half hour.